I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Viva Las Vegas. Nothing personal. Word of the day is Viva Las Vegas. I am lucky. It's a Samson sit down and we've got Todd Furman here and he's going to make you smarter because we're about to have a conversation about the number one topic that existed in 18 years in baseball. And since I've left, it has exploded into what's now really the number one revenue source in all of sports. We've got a gaming analyst He's not just a brother from CBS Sports HQ. He has his own show, Bet the Board. He is a professional, not a professional hockey player, but a professional analyst. Todd Furman, welcome to Nothing Personal. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you guys for inviting me on. And let's just say it's a lot easier to kind of sit at multiple screens and navigate through the sports betting marketplace than it is to put yourself in harm's way and try and stop a 90-mile-an-hour slap shot. Don't think my body is quite built for that at this point in my life. I guess I would say, though, if you could stop a 90 mile an hour slap shot, is it true that you would not be sitting in front of four screens right now? (laughs) There's always a chance I would have loved to chase uh, athletic glory like most of us who played sports at a somewhat competitive level. But you'd be amazed uh, what the recruiting looks you get when you're out there going from school to school. They size you up and go, you're five foot ten, maybe 150 pounds soaking wet. Uh, on your best day. And unfortunately, you know, my ethnic heritage, there aren't a lot of Jewish starting goalies in the National Hockey League. We're not really built for contact sports in the grand scheme of it. So it's more of a kicker pursuit. It's more of the agent path and things along those lines. Ace Rothstein had the right approach, trying to figure out how to beat the lines from behind the counter, more so than being out there on the pitch. I'm trying to picture my, I can picture my house when I said to my mom, I'd like to play tackle football in my nice Jewish household. And she said, don't be ridiculous. You're going to get crushed. At that time I was five one. So I've shot up now four inches and I I've weighed the same since then, since eighth grade, actually at about a buck 30 soaking wet. But I'll tell you, Todd, I view goalie and tackle football as two things that most Jewish boys will never do, but you actually had a run in college. So I think that, I never had a run in football, so people are underestimating your skill. So I just want to give you one more chance. Is there a chance that you could play professional hockey right now? The chances of me playing professional hockey right now are 0.0%. Much like Bluto Blutarski's GPA in Animal House, there is no chance that I'd be out there able to lend any value to a practice squad, let alone the NHL, AHL, ECHL level Uh, There's very little athleticism left in my body at this point in my career. And begrudgingly, I have to admit that my delusions of grandeur will be left in the past. And despite my Jewish grandmother's best pleading along the way (laughs) that I should have played the piano, 
more so than pursued sports betting or athletics in general. Uh, I think betting is as close as I'm getting to professional athletics at this point. So when you say 0.0, you're going full blue Tarski. I love the reference because I'm a movie guy and I know you are too. I watch a movie every day. We should do like our top five sports betting movies, but what are the odds? If you had to set odds, can you tell me how would you go through setting a market for you playing professional hockey, but I want to take you back to when it was actually possible. Let's say when you were at Wesleyan and you were playing, how would you go about setting those odds? Well, see, we'd have to go back a little bit further because I was going to say at about 13 or 14, the prospects of at least getting a cup of coffee would have given me, let's call it a 500 to one shot, um, playing in some of the highest profile national tournaments, having been a part of a lot of the prestigious tournaments out on the East Coast for Hockey Night in Boston uh, and taking part in the U.S. development showcases during the summer. So I would have put myself in front of the right people. So at least at that point, around the 500 to 1 threshold, then as other players started to get uh, a little bit taller, a little bit stronger, put on some weight, and I realized that that wasn't going to happen for me. There was no growth spurt to get to 6'2", 220, uh, or anything along those lines. Every year that passed from, say, let's call it 14 or 15, those odds went from 500 to 1 to 1,000 to 1 to 5,000 to 1. Probably by the time that I set foot on campus at Wesleyan at about 50,000 to 1, and I spent as much time during my three years of varsity athletics in the bar as I did in the weight room doing everything else, I realized at that point that I was there for an education first and foremost, and the only affiliation I was ever going to get with an NHL franchise was potentially going to be in the front office. It sure as hell wasn't going to be out there on the ice, even in a preseason game. What makes me laugh about that is you had that epiphany while at the bar at Wesleyan. And I would argue (laughs) that many people have that epiphany when they file the application to Wesleyan. You know what? We all like to try and delude ourselves into thinking we can accomplish a lot more. And maybe I was a little bit naive in that particular pursuit. Uh, Having taken a year off between high school and college to play junior hockey out in the East Coast, Uh, Arguably one of the more enjoyable years I had living on my own for the first time in what I would best define as Burlington's low income housing district. So that was a little bit dicey when you came walking up the stairs with your hockey gear and you had to sidestep a hypodermic needle uh, along the way. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I think that year playing hockey, splitting my time at the rink and in the weight room and also working as a barista at Starbucks, it's a very unusual intersection. So if we were to draw a Venn diagram you can probably find about less than 1% of people that said they played junior hockey and they were a barista at the same time, kind of creating that intersection simultaneously. Uh, there's about a thousand minor leaguers who do that actually. So I think that the odds oh, maybe. I had no idea that they were getting up to work the early shift, trying to bake scones and make espressos uh, uh, for folks coming through. I, I, the one thing I will admit, David, at this point in my life, I've forgotten more about my coffee making recipes. And I'm not sure I remember what it went into the proper construction of a caramel macchiato to try and pass Starbucks very rigorous examination. Did you find a Shabbat dinner in the low income housing in Burlington? <laughs> I did not. And you know what? Junior hockey schedules don't lend itself to being in synagogue on Friday nights. Instead, you found yourself more on bus rides trying to navigate through lovely pastures uh, along, what is it, I-87, taking you through Vermont and and upstate New York. And then when you get to Hempstead, New Hampshire, there's not known for conservative synagogues and meeting rabbis for a good Shabbos dinner. So I want to fast forward now to you becoming a gaming analyst, and I want to talk about what's going on right now, because I don't think people realize the strength 
and the unbelievable force that these gambling companies have in professional sports right now. And it's like nothing I ever saw in my career, but something I dreamt about in terms of the amount of revenue that it could mean for a team and for a league. In the old days, and I hate using that expression, but that's what I am, is old. So I have a lot of days behind me, but I'm only in the fourth inning, might I add. In college or in high school, we'd play cards every day in the cafeteria. And then in college, I would play poker and there would be bookies on campus and people would book bets. People would make bets. There was a ton of sports gambling going on and that continued on. And we would always say, wouldn't it be unreal if we could do this without having to fly to Vegas? Because Vegas was the only place where you could actually bet on the sports game. And you have to realize that there are millions, you do know this, millions and millions of people who are like me, who are willing to gamble on games. This is before I got into baseball, by the way, who have the means to bet on games, but also have the fear of God put into them by their Jewish parents. Second only to don't get a tattoo (laughs) is don't bet with a bookie. So given all of that, The dream was, could it happen outside of Vegas? And then it started. And then it was a little pebble coming off a mountain. I'd like to talk about the avalanche that is DraftKings right now and FanDuel and Caesars and all the different ways that have made it so easy in so many states. How has that impacted your business? Well, a couple of things first and foremost. Let's hope when you talk about your life cycle being in the fourth inning, that's of a nine inning game and not the fourth inning of the front end of a seven inning doubleheader for the sake of us, all all of us out there. And and as far as Jewish mothers trying to put that fear of God into you, bookmakers, it's amazing that that was the case. And it almost felt like they read from the playbook, but I couldn't tell you how many times I actually had to meet a bookmaker on a Saturday or Sunday morning in the parking lot of a Jewish delicatessen eating a lox sandwich. So there was a little bit of a disconnect there for 17 year old Todd, who had to do some of the legwork for his father at the time uh, when my old man was busy taking on, you know, some had bigger fish to fry. But as far as the industry is concerned, uh, you know, it's been tremendous to kind of see how the space has exploded since the repeal of PASPA back in 2018. I, of course, got into the space long before that. I I moved out to Las Vegas about nine months after graduating from school on the East Coast to kind of pursue my aspirations of being in the gambling space, not quite sure how it was going to translate into working in sports. So, I mean, I started as a financial analyst. I kind of learned the casino business more on the food and beverage Uh, and the gaming analytics side than anything else. And people would consistently tell me, hey, look, sports is only an amenity. It represents 4% of GGR in the state of Nevada. If you looked at the historical financials and it's never going to afford you the kind of career that you really truly want to pursue. Todd, tell us what GGR is. Sure, sorry, it's gross gaming revenue. Thank you. for, For years when you looked at it, slot machines represent a huge portion, table games, food and beverage. Uh, and so many different things that go into the profit and loss sheets uh, for the major brick and mortar casinos out here that sports are really an afterthought. So there was very little money invested in talent, you know, even from the vice presidents and directors on down, because you were essentially looked at as a placeholder that you wanted people to stay in the casino. You didn't see it as an opportunity for the casino to get its name out there and create a little bit more buzz. So as a result, you know, people are trying to channel you towards casino marketing and, and other paths where you can find some of those six. And, you know, if you're very good at what you do, seven figure paydays. But thankfully for me in my late, you know, early twenties, I didn't have a lot of overhead. Student loans are a bitch. Let's not sugarcoat that. Uh, But there was no wife, there was no kid. So it was, all right, we're going to do everything we can 
to kind of see this out and stay optimistic that this country would come to its senses and sports betting would continue to grow. Now, I had left Caesars by the time Passbook repealed, doing some content for a number of other you know, entities that were out there in networks. And lo and behold, that was the game changer. So you mentioned some of the bigger players in the space. Uh, we know about the spends for FanDuel, DraftKings, Caesars, and what have you. And I think it's fascinating to see how everything will evolve. Because if we use baseball as the perfect analogy for it, I'm not sure we're much past the top of the second inning for the sports betting ecosystem to truly evolve. Whether we're talking about consolidation of operators or the acquisition costs that are associated with these massive promos that are out there, we know that typically sports books are only going to take home seven cents in the dollar. And that's before you factor in some of the tax structures in a state like New York, where you're located, that's north of 50%. There are all sorts of costs. So I think as we look at the sports betting space, it's not the panacea uh, for states to collect tax dollars. It's not the golden goose for operators, but it does open a variety of possibilities from a creativity standpoint. And I think the folks that are really benefiting the most are the leagues and the media companies right now, more so than the operators themselves. Do you think that DraftKings and FanDuel will be like Sirius and XM, where they start off as separate entities and eventually combine because it made far more sense to have one satellite radio company than two? I think there's a possibility. I think when you look at DraftKings, it's a little bit different than FanDuel as far as its business model, given the parent company, Flutter Group, uh, that's had such a strong presence in terms of running bookmaking operations throughout Europe and the UK. Whereas DraftKings, I mean, it's not a surprise that six months before the repeal of PASPA, I mean, the valuations for DraftKings, along with the burn rate and how quickly they were going through capital, I mean, they were talking to everybody and anyone out there trying and hoping for a buyout because they didn't have the growth that was going to be present in DFS the same way that it's provided itself in, you know, the sports gambling realm. I think DraftKings is more ripe for a takeover, and this is more speculation than any insider knowledge, of course, than when you're looking at FanDuel and the more entrenched establishment there. But there are so many other smaller operators that are just op that are working right now in more of a regional capacity. I think those are the ones that are going to create some consolidation, whether it's for their tech behind the scenes, whether it's for some of the media partnerships are there, that if we're having this discussion, let's say three months, three months, three years down the road that we're talking about essentially three or four behemoths in the space. Cause I really believe Caesars and MGM aren't going anywhere. I mean, they're firmly entrenched in this. They have the brick and mortar. They have so many different line items where they can absorb any sort of revenue loss. FanDuel I think will be there, but DraftKings will be the most fascinating case study to see what they do with their business model and how they're able to grow, expand, and have some of that flow through the bottom line to appease their investors, as we've seen their stock price really plummet from a peak in the high 50s, low 60s, dipping as low as the teens, you know, pretty recently. Can we talk about the morality of gambling for a second? Because one thing that we, we talked about in owners' meetings a lot is that the reason MLB didn't want to embrace gambling, uh, in addition to the competitive integrity of the game, which we're definitely going to get to, the question is, can you build and sustain a fan base? This is the question we'd ask ourselves. Can you build and sustain a fan base when what you're really doing is asking them to switch their affinity from pleasure to business? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And one that if you use the Vegas Golden Knights kind of as the first case test for that, knowing that we had sports gambling legalized and it was a big topic of discussion for the National Hockey League in terms of what it was going to do as far as the in-stadium viewing experience was concerned, the amount of people that pulled out their mobile phones between periods looking to try and have an investment. 
And I think on a lot of levels, we talk about people switching their allegiances. Most people don't do this professionally. They feel much more comfortable betting with their heart than they do the wallet. So going to a game, you know, whether it's the Vegas Golden Knights or the Raiders out here, whether it's somewhere down the road going to a San Francisco Giants game uh, or Knicks, Yankees, Rangers, you name it. I think people are automatically going to gravitate towards making a case for the home team because they don't want to be that individual in the building rooting against their team. It's hard for them to kind of suppress their emotions uh, and knowing that if you're sitting amongst, you know, 95% Ranger fans and you have a bet on the Washington Capitals and Tom Wilson scores late in the third period, there's a good chance that you're not able to leave Madison Square Garden with your life and limbs uh, fully intact. So in terms of that, it's a valid question, but I think most people, especially those going and attending games, they're going to want to bet with the home team more than anything else. And for me, it fundamentally hasn't changed the viewing experience being in attendance of games as much as people would be led to believe. But if you think most people are betting with their heart or with their, if, if they love, let's say the, the Dolph, the dolphins, what a terrible example. Let's say the Cowboys <laughs> are America's team. Everybody's America's team. I can't keep track of who's America's team anymore. How do you, how does that impact your analysis of that game or when you're setting a line or looking at a line, do you see the, the ability to take advantage of people who bet with their heart? Yeah, less so when you're looking at national operators that are kind of numb to the fact where they're taking bets. And it's always interesting because when you look at the legalization in Louisiana, there's no doubt sports books throughout that corridor are going to take losses on their balance sheets the weeks that the Saints cover. But if you're a Caesars and you have a national footprint, if I lose in the state of Louisiana, but I win everywhere else, you know, what's the difference since we're all flooding into, you know, one individual coffer. But at the same time, we have seen a little bit of that bias impacted in the numbers for the Golden Knights because sportsbooks that are just based in Nevada that typically take more recreational action than anything else, you can extract a little bit of value, whether it's five or 10 cents on the money line, whether you're looking to try and find a total that's a little bit more advantageous. And some of those mathematical edges over time can add up. But for the folks that are out there that are just looking to have a little bit of skin in the game and they're not nearly as price sensitive, it's really minor for them in the grand scheme of things. Whereas for someone like me, that if a number moves five or 10 cents, it may switch my sentiment in terms of betting on the Golden Knights or betting on the Edmonton Oilers. I'm looking for every edge that I can you know, potentially monetize. But on some level, the sportsbook operators may value my bet more and go, you know what? We know if we inflate this number a few extra cents, we can absorb all of that parlay money that's come in involving the home team and get a professional better or two to help balance our books out. Is it binary? Do you think that every there's that there's no actual extra money going into gambling? I've been thinking about this a lot with the New York's been legal for I'd say over a month now. And I think in January they announced something like a record 1.6 billion or some unbelievable number. And I could have that wrong, but it sounds right. But Coca, if he's listening, may be able to come up with it. But the question is, were all was all that money being bet illegally and now it's just being bet legally? Or are we are more new gamblers being born every day? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. Uh, I, I really believe that we're still just scratching the surface in terms of taking money from the gray markets and bringing it into the more regulated and legalized jurisdictions. Because the reality of it is, and what people don't want to talk about in greater spheres, whether it's in the league or anything else, the allure of credit for those of us that have been in the space is always going to be powerful. We look at the retail industry and how this entire country was built on debt financing, sports betting is no different. And if I have to go into my pocket 
and deposit, you know, whether it's a thousand dollars or five thousand or ten thousand in a sports betting account to be able to bet that money, it's going to be much more attractive to work with a corner bookmaker who extends me that line of credit and I either pay on my losses or I collect on my wins instead of taking capital that can be allocated for other avenues. So I do think you're going to gradually see a migration away from that. My biggest fear is that there is a number of operators that don't want to try and offer the same extensive menus. They don't want to offer the same competitive bet types because of the tax structure that's a little bit price prohibitive. So there are going to be some barriers to entry, but I get the feeling for that next generation of sports bettors that are coming up. There's no doubt been a stigma, a taboo attached to all of this, where people that were in more visible professions never wanted to work with that, you know, corner bookmaker or send their money to the Caribbean to try and bet that have always had an appetite for it that are now going to feel more than comfortable betting with a known operator where their money is safe. So I think it's a combination of both. And it's going to be fascinating when you get organizations like the American Gaming Association to dig into some of these numbers to extrapolate results once you have a significantly large enough sample size, not just a few weeks worth of data in New York, but you're looking year over year. Because for you know so many different Super Bowls, we had always talked about the money that changed hands in Nevada as far as the legal regulated handle, aka the amount of money that was bet on the big game, that represented just 10%. I think those numbers will gradually come up, but I would be stunned if we're talking about more than 50%, 50, that's a lot higher. Let's say 25% of the dollars being bet on sports just domestically here in the country, all taking place in a legalized fashion. You know, I was thinking I'm putting my league hat back on now because so you're president of a team or you're commissioner of a league and you, now you're accepting advertising revenue. You're actually doing partnership deals with the DraftKings of the world. So you are pretty much tying your brand to theirs and you're acknowledging that people are betting or you want them to bet and bet more on your games. And then you get a lawsuit filed like in with Brian Flores recently, where the question is, are you being paid? He's alleging he was paid to lose. Now, I, I explained on nothing personal because people lost their minds and said he's got to sell the team. This is the biggest scandal since Pete Rose. And I explained that tanking is far different than throwing. It's a nuance, but throwing a game is illegal, and that's the competitive integrity. Tanking is what we do as a team when we know our window to win is closing. My question for you is I want to talk about the concept of the relationship that leagues have with these gambling sites. Do you, are you not worried that there's going to be more Draymond Green situations? And to remind the listeners of what happened with Draymond Green, he started – uh, Clay Thompson's first game back and he was hurt and but he wanted to be there for the jump ball to start the game he starts the game he then commits a foul and leaves the game so he played one minute and really it was five seconds no points no rebounds no assists and the sports books had a problem because everyone who bet the under on his personal total prop bets they won because he had an official game and it became a big thing tell me where your head is on league relationships with gambling and the dangers of integrity? Well, I think you raise an excellent point there. And it's one that's lost on a lot of folks that they see tanking and match fixing as synonyms and interchangeable with one another. Whereas you being around sports in a professional capacity in the front office and such, and me working in the gambling space, you know, match fixing means that there is a predetermined results and there are going to be some bad actors involved in that trying to achieve an objective. 
Whereas tanking is a little bit different and it's more or less shifting the competitive balance because it's not tanking. If I want to play all of my young players and I'm not putting the best lineup out on the field, regardless of the sport, they're out there trying to win. They just don't have the skill set, the bandwidth or the ability to complete their objective. Whereas if I'm paying players to go out there and throw games uh, for financial gain, that's a much different example. And it's something that European soccer has dealt with at some of the highest levels in the past and done everything they can to try and root that out. So those two, I think it's an important distinction to be made. And when people go, well, you know, we can't bet the NFL because of Brian Flores situations. The reality of it is there are enough watchdogs at this point. And if there was any insinuation of impropriety or money that would have raised red flags, those games would have been pulled off the board immediately in that particular context. It's the reason that bad teams catch more points in big games late in the season, because you know that the skill set, the talent level and everything else isn't quite up to snuff. And the same reason why you're talking about a baseball game early in the year between a team projected to win 65 games in the Baltimore Orioles and the New York Yankees, the money line isn't going to be the same if a game is played on April 3rd as when it's played in late September. So I do think in that regard, the leagues have to be doing a better job getting that information out there, making sure that they're educating their partners and trying to send a message that, hey, look, we understand teams are going to tank to benefit them going forward, but it's not as though players involved are actually throwing games in the same context of the point shaving scandal at Arizona State with Benny Sillman or what we saw unfold at San Diego in years past where you had a couple of players that were out to take a payday and it was impacting the outcome of a particular game. My biggest fear that we're seeing now in the sports betting space more than anything else is that there's a disconnect between the leagues and the operators. And what I mean when I say that is the operators are obviously paying for airtime. They're looking to try and get their brands out there. And I'm not faulting the leagues for expanding their revenue path, but we saw a perfect situation unfold. And this is going to be very minor, but I think it just illustrates a bigger concern that yesterday or Sunday, uh, we saw the Bush clash in NASCAR out in Los Angeles. And when you have operators offering head-to-head matchups on drivers, they weren't aware that drivers may not qualify for what was called the main event. So they offered head-to-head matchups. You had a number of high-profile drivers that didn't make it to the main event. And rather than paying out those bets like they should have, they, they determined those bets were no action. When in reality, those folks that were looking to bet NASCAR knew that they could gain a competitive advantage, that certain drivers weren't going to qualify for the main event. And while it wasn't necessarily a free roll, that went into the handicapping process. And while that may seem very nuanced, this is where you have to create that open line of communication between league and operator. And my biggest fear right now is that you have people making decisions for a lot of the professional sport leagues that don't understand the vernacular, they don't understand the betting patterns, and they don't understand how the sports gambling space works to be able to make those informed choices and create that symbiotic relationships where it's an ongoing conduit between the two parties because a lot of these operators are looking to do things that better serve them, their own self-interest, and the leagues in the exact same context. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, 
This is the deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. So, Todd, does that mean that you would have preferred in the Golden State situation for Vegas? For Vegas? I, can't, I, I use Vegas as a defined legal term with a capital V. I, I think a lot of people do, David, so you're not the only one to see Vegas as this kind of 1984 right. element and that big brother oversees everything. And I know that's not the case, but for purposes of this discussion, assume that Vegas is defined as all sports betting websites yep. or any place you can, you can actually put action on something happening. Do you see a situation where Vegas needs to be called by the Golden State Warriors to let them know what the Draymond Green plan is? Yeah, the, the reason with this is I'll say no. And the reason I say that is because you're going to have player props and different situations, whether it's Draymond Green in this situation or if it's a player picking up two falls in the first 35 to 40 seconds of a game. I think as you see sports books look to try and expand their menus and player props have been a real focal point, they have to understand that all player props aren't created equally, that professional bettors are going to be privy to better information. They're going to look to try and identify their edge. And in this situation, and I don't know the exact machinations that unfolded here, is there wasn't anything nefarious. I mean, Golden State had this game plan. You had NBA insiders share this information, and it was betters that had a quicker trigger finger to be able to get down their bets, whether it was straight wagers or single game parlays, before the various operators were able to pull those numbers off the board. And the reason I say there was nothing nefarious how is that any different than if I'm looking to try and bet a sporting event and in the NFL, I'm scouring NFL insiders timelines, whether it's Jason LaConfora, Ian Rapport, or Adam Schefter, a key player in the instance of a starting quarterback test positive for COVID. No one knew that information ahead of time. I have 30 seconds to scramble and get my bet down. And I think it's a greater illustration of the ongoing cat and mouse game that takes place, not between the recreational better and the operator, but with the professional trying to get his or her edge, against the bookmaker trying to protect their digital fortress. The area where I took umbrage with the way this was handled is you had one very prominent sports book withhold payments on this for up to 48 hours as though there were bad actors trying to take advantage, where if the shoe was flipped and a player had bet Draymond Green over his total without that information earlier in the day, would they have refunded the money in that particular instance? And that's kind of how I look at it, having been on the operator side of things and now working more on the other side of the counter, looking for weaknesses in the betting markets. But the real problem is that, so Draymond, <clears throat> Draymond Green is one example, but let's talk NBA a little more because we do a nothing personal pick of the day every day. And we record the show in the morning, we release it in the morning and there's a line for a game and I give the line and Coke and I have a fight because I take the Sixers minus five because that's the line and I like the Sixers. And then three hours later, it's announced by Doc that Embiid is not playing. And then instead of giving five and a half, they're getting five and a half and they end up not, they end up getting crushed or whatever the result is. I feel as though that making picks or being an analyst or going on record, I'm at a huge disadvantage by not doing it right up to game time. When you're on the air doing your analysis, when you're figuring out what your picks are, how are you taking into account all the things that are going on? Because COVID is an unbelievable example 
of how things can switch. If you're not tied into the doctor or the testers or have a source there, things can switch right before game time. How are you dealing with that? It's definitely a bigger concern than ever before dealing with COVID. Now, the NBA, their problem isn't endemic just to COVID. We've seen this rest situation kind of manifest itself over the last couple of seasons when load management became the in vogue term for it. And you've seen as a result, a lot of sports books that typically put up the full betting menu the night before waiting until the day of, especially if there are certain players more prone to it. You use Joel Embiid as one example, the Lakers almost on a nightly basis playing the guessing game is will LeBron James be out there? Will it be Anthony Davis or what combination of the two will we have? And that's unfortunately the world we live in that, you know, if you do this over enough trials, there are going to be a handful of games that work out in your favor. There are going to be a handful of games that go against you. And it's why a lot of betters study some of these patterns as far as coaching tendencies to figure out when a player may rest. It's looking and going, okay, this is the third game in four nights. We don't think they're going to play it back to back. And if a book has a number out there, I can take full advantage. And the NBA may be more so than any other sport. When you have a superstar get shelled, especially one putting together an MVP season like Joel Embiid, the handicap completely changes. It's a little bit different if you're betting the NHL, trying to ascertain who you think the starting goalie is going to be, beating the market by 30 or 40 cents, realizing, hey, look, the first part of my job is done, but I still need that team to go out there and perform. So it does become a, a catch-22, and I think it's why a lot of people have started to take advantage more of the in-game betting options than betting games four to six hours before, like I was brought up on and you would have back in the day when you were betting games going, all right, I know what the lineup's going to look like. I figure that's going to be what's going to be out there more so than a player getting the likelihood of a player getting hurt in warmups instead of being ruled out for a variety of reasons, you know, beyond anything basketball related. So can you walk us through how you make a line, please? Yeah, it's uh, not as sexy as it sounds. Uh, I mean, a lot of times it's all mathematically driven, working off of uh, baseline power numbers. And with that power number, it's figuring out each player's individual value. You're looking at a lot of the advanced metrics that are there. And oftentimes it's more than meets the eye. So you use that kind of as a base point that you can attribute a numerical value to any team. And that's not related to just one sport. It's the NHL, it's Major League Baseball, it's international soccer, you know it, that every team can be represented on a spreadsheet with a number. Uh, at that point, you're going to try and figure out exactly which players are going to be available. Uh, I personally don't have a player model that I trust nearly as much as some. You know, one of our CBS colleagues has a player number a player grade for everyone and Kenny White, who does a better job than almost anybody in terms of figuring out if a player is out, okay, that's what I'm taking off of the number. I'll begin to scramble a little bit more when that's the case. Uh, I use as much, you know, qualitative reasoning and reading and research uh, before I'm going to try and set some of my numbers that I feel comfortable betting off of. But that's as simplistic approach as I can say, given all the factors that'll go into it. And then making sure that you don't become prisoner of the moment overreacting to a great or poor performance from a team and making sure that you realize that no team is ever as good or as bad as the last time you saw them. And every sport of course has unique challenges in and of their own right, where football becomes much more of a composite rating that you're looking at a starting quarterback being the key cog to move the needle, the college basketball and the NBA a little bit different, but major league baseball, it's as important, if not more so to have a rating on every single pitcher more so than an individual position player, because even the best in the game aren't going to completely overhaul the same way a ace atop the rotation getting scratched, handing the ball to a minor leader will than a Mike Trout, a Juan Soto, or Ronald Acuna being given a rest day. 
Can we go behind the curtain a little bit? Because I have a slightly different view of how lines are made. And, and again, I'm not uh, a professional. I only practice. The goal of the casino and the reason why casinos are so nice and the goal of every street corner bookie and every single website that you may want to buy stock in that is taking bets is to make money. The way they make money is not by gambling. And so they are making lines where in their mind, half the people are on one side and half the people on the other. And that's how lines move. Because if there's too much on one side, excuse me, if there's too much on one side, it means that they've made a mistake and they will keep adjusting it until it evens out. It's sort of like the scale in the doctor's office, the old school scale, where you have to move it according to the poundage. So is there really a system that's used or is it people like you going on TV and saying, I like this, I like that, and I like that. People then bet on what you say, and then that by itself could move the line. What is your view of that? So there's a yes and a no to this. And the first thing being in the ideal world, yes, sports books would be able to balance all of their handle, 50% on team A, 50% on team B. They would have unlimited critical mass. It would take gambling out of the equation. They'd collect their 10 cents on the dollar and everyone would ride off into the sunset. In reality, you don't have enough sporting events where that is actually a truly achievable result. The Super Bowl is a bigger anomaly than anything else where you're going to get a ton of betting handle that'll come in on both sides. But if you're talking about a Conference USA basketball game on a Tuesday night, you're not going to have you know, 100,000 bet on UAB and 100,000 bet on Middle Tennessee State. So every dollar in the sports betting marketplace isn't created equally. Those that have sophisticated opinions who have demonstrated an aptitude and an ability to be what we call the closing line, their bets are going to carry a lot more weight than some recreational customer. We'll use Matthew Coca as an example, <laughs> who comes into the Bellagio, the eve of the NCAA tournament, and wants to put down a six-figure bet on his beloved West Virginia Mountaineers. I'm not going to move the number based on that until I begin to assemble a case history and go, hey, this guy comes in, he's betting a game. It's typically moving one to one and a half points in his direction. I have to give him more respect in the betting market. Whereas for someone that's sophisticated, who's betting into it, I mean, it may take a lot less money than people think to create that domino effect and move numbers across the board. I mean, a $500 bet from a sophisticated better on an NHL total can move the market a lot more than, say, a $5,000 bet from a casino player who happens to be finishing off the 23rd hour of a bender at a blackjack table will adjust. So if books can put themselves in a position of being on the side of the wise guys, the sharps, the professional bettors, they're more than happy to create a little bit of liability and use your term gamble a little bit with their risk assessment, knowing that over the long haul, those are the results that are going to pay dividends. And that's what makes the NFL, at least for me, what was so much more fun to book than the nightly grind of college basketball, that you could go into spots and go, I feel comfortable having a number that may be off market a little bit, shading accordingly, willing to get a lot higher and going, I'm happy to take 65% of the handle on one side. I know where my sophisticated betters are going to go. And if I can win five out of 10 of those decisions, given the, mathemat the mathematics and the power behind it, let alone six or seven, I'm going to be able to show a lot more profit flowing through to my bottom line than if I took the approach, my goal is to purely balance it. And of course, that's everyone's risk threshold. It's the operator's discretion. 
And I think a lot of books kind of shy away from some of that because there is more inherent gamble. And as these entities get to be more and more corporate, it's easier to go, hey, look, we lost on Sunday. But you know what? The entire industry lost. That for me has always been a defeatist mentality. If the industry gets their teeth kicked in, because 13 out of 16 favorites cover in the NFL, if I can lose less, I'm doing my job as an odds maker and a bookmaker. And on days where the underdogs come home to roost, I want to win more and be able to outpace the market in that regard. Do you make a living betting on games or do you make no. a living making lines and talking about other people betting on games? So I do a combination of things. Uh, I don't make lines for any professional outfits at this point. Uh, I make lines that I bet into myself. So betting games represents a portion of my income, uh, but I'm also fortunate enough to talk about games through our podcast platform with Bet the Board. Uh, and obviously all the work we do with CBS Sports HQ to make betters a little bit sharper and more sophisticated. So it's a couple of different buckets that are there. Uh, I'll tell folks to make 100% of their income from betting sports. It is a extreme grind. There are a lot of volatile swings and the folks that I do it have much stronger intestinal fortitude than I do. What about bankroll? Given, given the, the, if we can go full circle now to credit, when you're doing the bookie on the street corner, he will break your legs. And I say that only semi facetiously, but you'll call him up. It's like a, a TTO, right? This trip only. Oh, yeah. Oh, you lost the one o'clock game. No problem. Bet double on the four o'clock game. See you tomorrow morning. I get that. But you can't do that online in the legal way. And that is a huge advantage to the player. And this is going to sound crazy to you because it should be a huge advantage to the casino. But I say casino to represent all these companies. I'm sorry about that. That's not the right word, although maybe it is. When you can't chase Amy, uh, you at the end of the day are saving yourself money on a higher percentage than making yourself even. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah, oh, for sure. Uh, the idea of chasing your losses and being able to bet, you know, the early games on a college football Saturday, take your losses there, double down on the next window, subsequently all the way through the degenerate special when Hawaii does have a home game, you know, six to seven times during the fall, you do yourself a huge disservice there. I mean, and what I was taught at a young age, it's easy to get yourself out of a small hole than it is to dig out of the Grand Canyon. And no one who does this professionally is going to win every day, every week, or every month. Anybody who professes to do that is completely full of it. They're selling you snake oil and they're lying through your teeth. So the best in this business can handle the highs that come along with it and the lows. And to your point, bankroll management is extremely imperative that you can only bet what you can afford to lose. And for professional bettors, you know, essentially their 401k is their betting bankroll. They're adhering to Kelly criterion principles and you know, betting three to 5% maximum on any individual position or whatever kind of mathematical edge they've been able to identify. And if you can lose one day, but you can make that back and then some the next day, it's a heck of a lot better than feeling just because you lost on a Saturday or Sunday, you have to get it all back before you have to square your balance with your illegal bookmaker on a Monday or before you have to deposit in any regulated book uh, to try and be in action the following week. Always know that losses are a part of this business and much like failures at the plate in major league baseball, the best aren't always defined on how much they're winning when it's going. It's how much they can mitigate the damage when things aren't going well. You, you, that is some of the best advice we could give our listeners right now and anybody who gambles. And that's why you see all the commercials, but it's in very small print. You need reading glasses of plus 2.75 to read it. But people who ha who need help and have a gambling addiction, I would say that people in your business and in our business do have the gambling addiction. The thing that really needs to be worked on 
is bankroll management. And I think that most people don't understand that concept. They don't understand what it is they have, what it is they're willing to lose because all they do is picture the upside. So one of the things I spend time talking to people about is managing downside risk. And that goes for when I was on Wall Street, that goes for when you're talking about gambling, that goes for business, podcasting, managing downside risk when you're running a baseball team. Managing downside risk is the single most important quality. And the reason why these casinos are so rich, have so much revenue, is most people don't do that. So what is your best advice for managing downside risk? Yeah, it's one of the great points. I mean, when you talk about it, we can all afford to make more money. It's what can you afford to lose before it impacts other aspects of your life? And talking about the math behind casinos and why they continue to build big towers and provide all of these other elegant luxuries that come along with Las Vegas and other cities that have now gravitated towards building casinos is that most people don't have the self-control. They don't have the exit strategy. And let's not kid ourselves. No one declares themselves a professional roulette player knowing that they're losing 5.26% every time that double zero roulette wheel spins. You cannot outrun that kind of math. In sports betting, you can at least come to some level where if you do this professionally and you're willing to put the time and you can level that playing field to put yourself in a good spot. But the single best piece of advice I always tell people, and for most of the folks that are watching, they're going to bet recreationally, whether it's for the Super Bowl, whether it's for the NCAA tournament or anything else, you have to see sports betting as that form of recreation. Figure out what amount of money you feel comfortable losing. Set that aside. And if you happen to make money, hey, great. That puts you in the 2 or 3% that are able to turn a profit from it. But if you lose that money, it's not the end of the world. It's no different than if you decided you wanted to spend 250 bucks to go play a round of golf at Pebble Beach, which probably I'm selling shorts, probably more in the 750 range these days. Or you decide you're going to go to a show or a sporting event or anything else to try and make sure that you're compartmentalizing sports betting and seeing it as a vehicle to entertainment above all else, above all else not as a tool to generate unprecedented wealth and riches. They don't continue to provide sports books. They don't continue to see a proliferation of operators getting into the space because everyone that's betting sports is able to turn a passing interest in their favorite team into being able to double, triple, quintuple their initial investments. So you're using the disposable income entertainment argument. It's one of my favorites where you say, hey, listen, it's totally okay to bet. I talk to guys at HQ about this all the time. It's totally okay to bet because just you don't have time because you're working all the time to go to a movie or to go to dinner. So take the amount of money that you would spend going to dinner or going to a show, as you said, or going to a movie maybe, or buying a streaming service or buying a car. But now we're getting into the weird part. Use that to gamble. And what they always tell me is, I hear what you're saying, but when I go to a movie or to a show or to dinner, I am guaranteed that when I walk out the door, I have fewer dollars than, than when I walked in. With gambling, I have a chance to not just be entertained, but actually to supplement my income, and I never consider the downside. And what I say to them, you are the reason why booking is profitable, why being the house is profitable. And we could sit here all night, Todd. We are not going to convince people that gambling money is entertainment because that is what the delusion is. That's what we feed them. It's like in Vegas with no clocks or no oxygen or too much oxygen. It's part of the con that it's just entertainment. But in fact, it's a profit maker, not for you. The, the craziest part about all of it, and it's human nature in its truest form where people look at a trip to Vegas and you've had buddies, I've had buddies, friends, family, what have you, that come out here 
No one comes out to Vegas going, you know what? I think I want to buy a new car and I'm going to go out to Vegas. I'm going to play blackjack and roulette for eight hours a day to try and maximize the upside there. Or, you know what? I've set aside money for a down payment on a home, but I want a bigger home. So let's go to Vegas and let's try and play blackjack or roulette to try and find a little bit more financial upside. Yet sports, because I think all of us have that emotional attachment to teams, that visceral relationship with it, or we feel that we always know more because you know what? I watch Sunday night baseball every week. I know the ins and outs and don't ever think about, to your point, the downside of a round ball bouncing awkwardly or an oblong ball in the NFL careening off an upright to change a win into a loss, that it's people needing to change their thought process behind it. And it's a little bit scary to think of. And the one fear I do have when you look at the proliferation of sports betting content is so many people say, well, you know what? I can say what I want because it's only entertainment. I think all of us in the space have a responsibility to our viewers and people that are taking in our content of making sure that they do things responsibly, but also realizing that people are putting up their hard-earned money. It's a lot different sometimes than some of those other pursuits that are out there where you can let uninformed opinions really predominate. If a movie critic gives me a bad review on a movie, I'm not going to be that angry. But I can tell you for people that have no business offering input or suggestions on sports bets, uh, that can do that. I think all of us have an increased responsibility to be clear, to be transparent and try and do the best job possible, understanding that there are some people. And unfortunately, there are going to be three to 5% of the population, if not a shade more, they can't do this as adults, can't do it responsibly. And the reality of it is I've seen some of that first and foremost behind the counter uh, during my time at Caesars. And then you read some of the tragic tales that come along with it. Uh, and it is staggering because you do realize that for most people that can control themselves, there is that other element that are going to do things that are probably going to be a little bit self-defeating. So here's the proviso, folks. Someone like Todd does this for a living. The amount of work he puts in, it's not just a vocation, it's an avocation as well. And if you're out there betting and taking nothing personal picks of the day or going on CBS Sports HQ, you're going to get smarter, you're going to get informed opinions, but you have to bet within what is reasonable for you. And it is not what you do for a living. It's not what I do for a living. We are lucky to have you, Todd. We told you we'd keep you 45 minutes. We've gone a little bit over. But as we leave, I need your pick. Who's going to win the NBA championship? <laughs> I'm just you know, kidding. You know what? Don't even say it. <laughs> no, you know, it's funny about it because when you look at it now, I still think there are a couple dominoes to fall. I'll tell you that uh, anyone who's betting the Lakers right now at prices of 15 to 1 probably needs their head examined. Uh, but I do think there's a heck of a lot more parity. And when you look at the Eastern Conference right now, there's all sorts of value. If you believe this Brooklyn dumpster fire is going to continue, maybe it is the year the 76ers get over the hump, but I wouldn't write off the Miami Heat having a lot to say about who comes out of the East and most likely take on Phoenix or Golden State. But either way, don't bet your house payment. No, that I can tell you with 110% unadulterated certainty, do not bet your house payment. Only bet what you can afford to lose because once sports betting starts to seep into other aspects of your life, and you're worried about how you're going to put food on the table or a roof over your head, that's when the problems really set in. And that's not a spot that anybody should willingly put themselves in. And that's just business. It's nothing personal. Thank you, Todd. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. 
Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.